following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken us down in his flesh, the dividing wall, of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. We've been in, a, in the book of Ephesians, if you've been with us, um, pretty much since the beginning of the year, uh, going verse by verse, very slowly, actually. We've been at it here um, for a number of months, and we're only, well, today, just finishing out the second chapter, and, and my Bible is, is starting to feel the abuse of it, just opening up the same pages every week. I've got coffee stains and rip marks, and my highlights are going crazy, and cigar ash that's laced in the binding of it, just from being in the Word for so long and saturating ourselves and, and just letting God use this to form us as a certain kind of people. And this has really been the one agenda that we have as we come to the book of Ephesians. It's to look at it through the lens of identity formation. We're asking this question, who am I? Now, this is a big question that everybody wrestles with, and it's not just at one point in your life, because you see this, like, you spend your, you know, you're growing up, you're trying to figure out who am I within the context of my family, and then you get out of the house, and you go to college, and you get, you know, out on your own a little bit, and you're trying to explore a little bit more and more, like, who am I, what's my place in this world, and then you get into work, and you get this career, and you start finding this identity, you have this correlation between who I am to what I do, and you can do that, and then you get to a midlife crisis, and this question pops up all over again, and you're just always wondering this question. And who am I? Always. Might be very blatant and it's sometimes some subtle, running under the radar, but this question is always circulating. Who am I? Now, Ephesians takes us to the gospel and shows us that we have all kinds of glorious identity statements that are true about us. 
That, that if your faith is in Jesus, there are all kinds of things that are true about you on a fundamental level. So like if you're in Christ, you can say, I am adopted. Every morning you wake up, you can look yourself in the mirror and say, this is true of me. I'm adopted. I'm loved. I'm blessed. I'm redeemed. All of these, and it just, there's a whole list. I mean, we got a few of them up here on these banners, but all of these things are what's true about you. This is your identity. This is who you are. And as we've gone through Ephesians, the first chapter and a half has really had this focus on the individual. Right? This focus on, if, if I'm talking to myself in the mirror, this is what's true of me as a person. And what we see now as we round out chapter two, there's a shift that takes place where the question isn't necessarily who am I, the question is, who are we? It moves to this corporate communal aspect in the reality that as God brings individuals to himself, he's bringing people to himself together. So here we find that we are part of something bigger than yourself, and it's huge. We are brought into this transcultural, eternity, eternal family that's called the church. In chapter one, Paul kind of introduces this idea, right? You, you are the church, the, the body of Christ. Now, when we talk about the church, everybody kind of has their own visuals. There's things that pop in your mind about what the church is. Um, many assumptions, far-ranging opinions about what the church is, what it looks like, what it's supposed to be. Now, some people think, you know, I mentioned church, and the thing pops in your mind, it's a, it's a building, Brick and mortar, here's the church, here's the steeple, right? That, that's what the church, it's just a physical place. And some people think about church, and they think about, well, church is this event that we do once a week, right? We come together, this is church. What we're doing right here, this is, this is what church is. Now, some people maybe have a, a more skeptical view of the church and say, well, the church is just like, it's a shared interest organization. It's a 501c3 that kind of, everybody has a little bit of stuff in common. They come together, and they do, you know, Stuff that kind of function as the morality police to our culture, but none of these adequately define what the church is. See, church is not an organization. It's not a 501c3. It's an organism. It's, it's the body of Christ. Just as Paul says in, in chapter one, is the body of Christ. And like our bodies, like, our phys- like the bodies that you and I occupy, the church is a living, growing changing, complex organization. Have you ever thought about how complex your body is? Like, I just get blown away. Like, somebody who study, studies the body and can walk away and say, like, yeah, I don't think God exists because our bodies are so intricate, no, inti- somebody help me, intricately, thank you. They're intricate, nope, I'm not gonna do it. They're so well designed. There's this interplay between all the various pieces of your body. It's like, it just, it's got to point to a, a, a creator. And like our bodies, they're complex, they're growing, they're changing. The church is fearfully and wonderfully made by the power of God through the gospel. Now, as you read through the Old Testament, or Old Testament, New Testament, both, there are several illustrations that explain what the church is. And many of them are right here in the second half of chapter two of Ephesians. And so we're gonna look at these um, and, and unpack this question, what is the church? Because at Sacred City, we want to be a biblical church. 
We, we want to be a church that's, that's not, not only do we come to the, the scriptures for preaching and hear the word of salvation, but we come to the Bible to understand who we are in this world, what God has in mind for us as his called and chosen people. We want to be a biblical church. Because what the Bible presents as what the church is, is far more glorious than anything that we could create for ourselves. Far more glorious than any sort of ideas about what we think the church should be. They pale in comparison to what the scriptures have here. So we're gonna dig into this, and there's four things, four aspects of this, of what the church is. The church is a new humanity. It's a new nation. It's a new family. It's a new temple. Those are the four things that we're gonna take a look at. Now, chapter two of of Ephesians starts um, talking about the state of humanity, the fallen state of humanity. It says at the very beginning of chapter two, if you go back, if you remember, it says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It says you were dead. So the, the condition of humanity, the natural Condition is that of a fallen, broken, sin-laced condition that says you're dead in your sins and trespasses. Now, if you're dead in your sins and trespasses, there's a sense where you're getting pulled along. You're following the course of the world, the culture. You're oppressed and held hostage by the prince of the power of the air. That's another word the Bible uses for Satan, that there's, a, there's an enemy out there that's trying to, to just rob you of your humanity, to suppress you and, and to keep you from flourishing. And as we live in this fallen condition, our sinful state leads us into this life of self-gratification by by leaning into our sinful and fleshly passions. And Paul says, because of this, we were children of wrath. Now, when you go to verse 11, Paul echoes this again. He says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. He says, you guys were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth and strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and, and without God. So he repeats this thing again. In the fallen state, things were very bleak. Now we need to ask, like, why is, th- why is this, why is this the why? <laughs> and, and really, to answer that question, you have to trace it all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where, see, humans were created and designed to flourish. God God wanted us to live an abundant and full life near to him, close to him, obeying him, tending to the earth, filling it, subduing it, right, carrying out this, this mission that God had for the world. And Adam and Eve, as they're placed in the Garden of Eden, they've got two trees, you know, there's a special tree, the tree of of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, and in this garden, there are all kinds of yeses. God said, you can do anything. You can do anything except eat from this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Well, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They pushed away. Say, hey, we don't want, like, we're, gonna do, we're gonna do our own thing. And as they did this, they, they started unraveling creation. They took the fruit, they ate it, they broke their relationship with God, and all of creation started kind of crumbling apart. Now, what happens there, as they eat of the fruit, God has to remove them from the Garden of Eden. It's, it's, the Eden is no longer a safe place for humans to live. And so he, he puts them outside of the garden, he puts an angel 
with the flaming sword protecting the gate to get back into the Garden of Eden. You can't get in there. And so this is why Paul says, listen, in your sinful, fallen state, you're separated, you're alienated, you're strangers, you've got no hope, you're without God. It's because here in the, after Eden, after the fall, you're pushed out. It's no longer a life lived close to God. It's life my own way. And we just keep pushing, 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 because we keep insisting to do life my own way. And because of this, all humanity, even the sweetest, most precious babies are born in the state where they're warped by sin. Give them enough time, and the sinfulness will start to bubble up to the top. You don't have to teach them. You don't have to teach them how to be sinful. Paul says in Colossians that we are hostile toward God because of this, this fallen condition that we occupy. We're doing evil deeds, and that's all we know. That's all we know what to do. And this inhumane cycle of obstinate ignorance just keeps going and going and going. And if God were to step back and let humanity just do its own thing, dumpster fire. That's what it would be. That is until the grace of God meets us right where we are. And the grace of Jesus drastically changes. This is what Paul is really focused. Hey, you were once this way, but now God has made you alive. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. God has made you alive with Christ. Why? Because of his rich mercy. Because of his love, his great love with which he loved you, God set his love upon you and he raised you with Christ. Now, this idea, so if you're dead, this humanity is sort of like corrupt and going to the grave. Well, God says, listen, I'm going to change the trajectory of humanity by raising Christ from the dead. And I'm going to raise you with him. So if your faith is in Christ, Paul says, you have been raised with Christ. It's not that you will be raised with Christ, though there will be a resurrection. He says, right now, you have already been raised with Christ and been seated in the heavenly places. Now, this is the inauguration of a new humanity, right? This is the new people, gospel people, people who have been redeemed, who have been saved, who have been made alive by the grace of Jesus Christ. And Paul really hammers into this, this idea of a, a new humanity here in verses 13 through 16. He says, um, actually, I'll go back. You Remember that you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers, no hope, without God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. So there's a sense of, hey, you were once separated, you were far off, and now God is bringing you near. He's bringing you back to himself. While you were rebelling and pushing away, God is fighting for you to bring you near, to reconcile you, to give you peace. For he, for, uh, he, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, check this out, has made us both. So in this context, Paul's talking about Jews and Gentiles, two very different classes of people, very different worldviews, very different inheritances, like the two, two very different groups of people that were like, like oil and water, incompatible with one another. And now in the gospel, Paul's saying, listen, he's taking these two people and he's making us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments. He might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so make, making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ. So here you see this. He's creating a new man. Now, he's not just talking about a new man. There, there's a piece of this where we can go, okay, a new man in the body, the body of Christ, a singular thing, but really what he's talking about is a new humanity. 
A new, completely new type of creation, a new creation. In fact, you go to uh, Corinthians, it talks about the old is gone, the new has come. There's a new creation, a new humanity, a humanity that is no longer pushing against God, but is reconciled to God, that's being brought near, the drawing near, that we're at peace with God. This is the new humanity that the gospel creates. And if your faith is in Christ, you're among this humanity, uh, among this new creation. Now, if you are part of this new humanity, your faith is in Christ, you are a gospel person, then there's something else that's true about you. In verse 19, he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. So remember that stuff he said at the beginning, you were separated, you were alienated from the commonwealth. He says, no, in the gospel, you are no longer, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now here, Paul's introducing this new nation. Now, what, what new nation is he talking about? He's talking about the United States. Is this written in 17, whatever it is, 1776? No. He's talking, you're about a, a new, you're a citizen of a new nation, a better nation than any worldly kingdom that you can think of. You're a new citizen in the kingdom of heaven. Now Peter talks about this in his first epistle. He says, he proclaims this over those who are in Christ. You are a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation. You're, you're, you're a citizen of this holy nation. Now in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is king. Already in chapter one, it tells us that Jesus is far above every rule, every authority, every power, every dominion. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's, that's who you serve when you're in the kingdom of heaven the greatest king known to man. And we are his people. Now, to gain citizenship in a country, you have to meet certain standards, right? There, there's a certain test. There are things that, you know, criteria that you have to meet in order to gain citizenship. I know some, some of you in here have, have gone through this process where you have to learn about all the United, like stuff that... I was supposed to learn in eighth grade that I really don't remember, but you have to learn all this stuff about the Declaration of Independence, you recite the Pledge of Allegiance. There's all kinds of different things that you have to do to obtain citizenship. The question is, what's the standard? What's the criteria for the kingdom of heaven? Well, it says it's, it's a holy kingdom. It's a righteous kingdom. It's a glorious kingdom. See, the, the standard to participate in the kingdom of heaven is that you would be a holy and pure person. Who's going to do that? Who here can honestly say, I am a holy person? I am a pure person. I mean, like, if you were to chronicle every thought you've had this week, It'd be very embarrassing, right? Prove right away, dismissal, nope, rejected. But here's the thing. In the kingdom of heaven, Jesus, the king of kings and lord of lords, is full of grace and love. He's a good, loving king. In fact, he's the only king that will sacrifice himself for the benefit of his citizens. So every other kingdom, every other leader thinks of the citizens as a means to an end, to protect their own power. But Jesus says, I'm going to lay my own life down so you can have access to what you don't deserve. 
And in that, Jesus sheds his blood. See, even here in this, he says, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the blood of Christ cleanses us. It makes us blameless. It makes us holy. The identity that Jesus has as the righteous one now gets credit to us, and we, based on the merit of Jesus, can gain entry to the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is a good king. See, not, not only does he lay his life down for you, but the way that he rules is filled with goodness and truth and justice and peace. Now, this is, this is catechism. I can't talk words today. This is a, a stark contrast from living in the kingdom of this earth. Right? Earlier, in chapter 2, Paul says, listen, you were following, you were entrapped by the prince of the power of the air. Like, the, you, you had an authority over you. You were already living in a kind of kingdom, and it was inhumane, and it was cutting you down at the knees, Kuiper, and it was destroying you. Now, Jesus, he is bringing you into flourishing. He's, he's expressing his faithfulness. He's showing you your good, his goodness toward you. He's trying to lead you into the good life, and as you submit to this good king, your life opens up and flourishes. Blessed is the one who keeps the commandments. See, as Jesus expresses his faithfulness to us, we see this loving king, and we can't help but pledge our allegiance to him. See, that this is, as Christians, like we, we can thank God for the United States of America. Thank God that we live in a country where we can express our religious freedoms and come to worship. There are all kinds of benefits and blessings of being an American. But as Christians, we don't pledge allegiance to the flag, not primarily. Our allegiance is to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one seated above all things, and now we are part of, this is the primary, fundamental identity, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But check this out. As Jesus is our Lord and King, and we're citizens in the kingdom of heaven, we're also, look at this, among the saints. Do you see that? He says, you, were, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. See, it, it, the, the kingdom of heaven is not a population of one. Right? You, got brother, you, got, you got fellow citizens here with you. God is bringing all kinds of people into his kingdom. It's a multicultural kingdom. That's not just people that look like us, who have the same political ideas or social and economic status as us. The kingdom of heaven is a multicultural kingdom, and God is bringing all people to himself. And here we are, fellow citizens with the saints. Now, this is also cool, because to, to say we're fellow citizens among the saints, that tells you that there are no such things as second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. There, there's not like Christian A-team, like this, the, the Christian elites that know all their Bible trivia, and they got all this stuff put together, and they got perfect attendance at church on Sundays, and great at, at leading missional Like, And then you got these, the B squad here. That, in junior high basketball, that's what, I was on the B squad. Right, that's where I, that was my space. See, in, in the kingdom of heaven, there are no second-class citizens. You are fellow citizens among the saints, among the holy ones. See, because you have been made holy. You have been qualified. And when we talk about citizenship, 
This is not an American version of citizenship. I think we have, as Americans, we have this tendency of like, we live in our place, in our, our houses, we've got our, our privacy fences, and we kind of keep to ourselves. And you may or may not know your neighbors. You might know their names. Probably don't know their story. Like we kind of have this distance between fellow citizens, even here in the Quad Cities. You feel it. It's like there's some neighbors that I, I don't even see coming out of their house because they just sort of live in this bubble. The kingdom of heaven is not like that. Citizenship is not like that, where you don't know your neighbor. And the next thing that, that Paul is showing us about the church is that the church is a group of intricately, I did it, intricately connected citizens. Verse 19 goes on. It says, hey, listen, you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. See, God's got this house, this building, this space, and you're in there with the rest of the fellow citizens. Now, this is a theme that's repeated often throughout the New Testament. In fact, every time you open it up, uh, you'll see Paul talking to his brothers and sisters in the faith, talk about the household of God, talk about uh, the, the um, qualifications for church leadership is governing a household. It's the idea of carrying on, uh, caring for your household to a greater extent beyond your own home to the rest of the church. So the church is this idea of it's a family of families. It's a big family, the household of God. And so this truth that we have that says you've been adopted in Christ. Yeah, you have. Along with all your other brothers and sisters. See, you're, there's so many people that, that think of this adoption by God the Father as like I'm now living in a single child home, right? It's just it's one child, me and God, and that's it. But the picture Paul has here is like it's a household. You got, you got brothers and sisters in the faith. People that your life should be interwoven with. Now, unlike a, a biological family, <coughs> excuse me, we don't look alike. Like, we just had our fourth son, and people will always comment, just like, oh, it must be really great genetics because you guys all look, this, all the boys look the same. But in the family of God, we don't look alike. In fact, it should be, it ought to be a kaleidoscope of diversity that our local church would represent the kind of diversity that you see here in our city, where different races are represented, different cultures, different political views, the economics, the culture is different, the classes are different. There's this diversity, yet somehow and miraculously there's a profound unification that happens only by the blood of Jesus. See, we, we share a gospel DNA now. We, we don't share the same, like, literal blood, but the blood of Christ that covers us all. We share in that blood, and now we receive this gospel DNA. Right, so he says, all right, you're a new humanity. You're citizens in a new kingdom. You're in God's household. You're part of a family. And then he goes into this, you're, you're a new temple, now, there's this obvious pattern here to all these metaphors that as you go in, they, they get a deeper and deeper connection, right? A new humanity, we can all say, oh, yeah, we're all brothers and sisters, a human race. And then, oh, yeah, well, you actually occupy the same country. You're, you're a citizen, okay? Well, I have that. And now you're actually living in the same household. And then he goes even further. But here, it doesn't seem like that because in verse 20, Paul basically calls us rocks. So, you know, it's like we put this up on here. I am a stone. I'm a rock. 
Now, this is not meant to be an insult. This is not something, you know, we're, we're not being called dummies. This is actually one of the most glorious truths about you. And if you, if you believe this, if you lean into this, this opens up just a, a, a layer of flourishing that, that, man, you cannot fathom. And this idea actually continues digging in. When he calls you stones or rocks, he's digging into the connectivity of the Christian life because Paul here is saying, listen, you're so intertwined with those around you. That you're, you're so part of this big thing that is big and it's glorious, and you can revel in the role that you play here in this. Now, let me take you to, to the, the last chunk here in verse 19, or actually, uh, verse 20. He said, well, he says, your fellow citizens, your members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles. So here, he's, he's switching metaphors again, going into construction language. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Switches to this construction analogy. Now, during COVID TV binges, I know you guys all did that with me. Um, we found this show called Lego Masters. Anybody seen that? Yeah, pretty cool stuff. Uh, these, these, like, really skilled Lego builders um, get together this competition. Kids love, uh, my kids love Legos. Um, I have a mixed relationship with them because they really hurt to step on. But they, they have all these artists come together and build and compete and just making some really marvelous Creations. Now, a Lego by itself, a Lego brick by itself, is unimpressive. <laughs> it's like a piece of plastic. You know, watch out in the dark. Don't step on it. But when you take that Lego brick and you skillfully place it among other Legos, it can be part of something incredible. Just something that you just, how in the world is that? That's made a lake. Like, it's something unbelievable. It's just like an orchestra, right? I can play violin, and I can play a beautiful violin, but there's still something that until I get placed in the midst of an orchestra, together, something more beautiful, something more glorious, something more uh, jaw-dropping happens. There's an ensemble that creates beauty and accomplishes something that cannot be done on its own. Paul is saying, you are part of something bigger. Now, our individualistic culture, and we live in a very individualistic culture, the focus is you are yourself. Like you are, you are defined by your success, your happiness, all of your significance is wrapped up in you figuring out what makes you happy and pursuing that because you are the end-all, be-all for your life. Your goal in life is to fulfill yourself. And what happens when we have this mentality is the way that I look at others is not brothers and sisters who I love and have this, this mutual relationship or this give and take, but I look at people as if I need to use them to accomplish my own mission for my life, that I have to take advantage of them in order to get a leg up. And that might mean that, that I, to do that, I have to put them down. It might set them back so I can go forward. And the irony of thinking this way, the irony of living this way, is that if you live for yourself, you will make zero difference to anybody else. You'll lose significance. 
See, the very thing that you're setting out to, to obtain and fulfilling yourself vanishes, vapor, gone. You won't make any impact on anybody else. You'll lose significance. Now, this is, this is like a lot. This is like the way of the, the world, right? The, the pull of the culture that you're, you're, you're going according to the patterns of the world, that stuff. This is what, this is what kind of looks like. That individualistic pull. I can be my own island. I can be my own man. I can be my own woman. I don't need this. I don't, I'm autonomous. But here's the deal. You were not made to be an autonomous person. You were made for relationship. You were made for relationship with God and relationships for, with other people. You are not a silo. You're not just an outbuilding, right? A standalone structure that's all by yourself. That's not what you are. It's like a Lego. You look at a Lego, it's designed to connect to other pieces. That's what you are. Now, we are so steeped in this individualistic culture that we would rather be an outhouse than be part of God's mansion. I'd rather be my own thing, do my own thing, find my own, than, than really dig into and connect with and be part of something glorious. You are a stone that's meant to be part of something epic. And Peter says the same thing in his epistle. He says that you are a living stone. See, when Paul uses this building imagery, he's not talking about brick and mortar. He says, you are a spiritual building. You are a living stone. You are a new temple. See, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. If you are a Christian, you are a brick in the dwelling place of God. Now, he impacts this building imagery by saying, you've been built on the foundation of the gospel. So you, you got the, you've got the prophets who came before Jesus and were pointing forward to this gospel message that God had, had even promised at the beginning in, in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve had already rebelled. He said, I will crush the serpent's head. And that message of deliverance and salvation kept on getting repeated through the, the prophets. There would be this holy one, the anointed one, the Messiah would come. And so all the prophets are pointing forward to the promise of God of being fulfilled in this one person. And then all of the apostles are standing on the other side of Jesus' arrival, pointing back. This is the one. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. This is the deliverer. This is the king. And so we have this foundation, this historical foundation that runs throughout the course of humanity where God is testifying to the foundation of the church being the gospel. This Messiah points to Jesus, this cornerstone. And on this foundation and with this cornerstone, the church is kept from collapse. Now, you need, listen, we need, if we want to keep standing as a church, we have to be tethered to the message of the gospel, to the prophets, to the apostles. We have to be sunk into this foundation. Because if we jump off this and we start following our feelings and sentiments and kind of creating our own idea about what church should be, the church is going to fall apart. In fact, Paul talks about, I think it's in, in Corinthians, talk about there is no other foundation. Any other foundation for the church will inevitably fall apart and the church will be hot mess. 
It has to be tethered to the prophets, the apostles, Jesus, the cornerstone. No, not only does, not only is the church held up by this, but it's held together by Jesus. Check this out. It says, you've been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. Our old house in Rock Island um, had this limestone foundation. Uh, it was literally just a pile of rocks, big, chunky. That they were not shaped. They, they weren't pretty. Um, just a bunch of rocks that were stacked up on top of each other. Now, if you, if you were to build a house and just stack rocks on top of each other that, that are misshaped, they don't have that sort of, they don't fit in right, your house is going to cave in on itself. It, it, it's going to fall apart. It's not going to be stuck together. In fact, you, you get a rainstorm and it's just going to sweep out. But here's the thing. When, when they take that mortar and they paste it in every, every crack of every rock, trying to kind of support the other rocks and make accommodations for the misshaped and, and, and augmented pieces of this rock. The mortar functions as a bond and keeps the rocks from falling apart. Now, this is exactly what the grace of Jesus does in the church. See, we are these misshapen rocks. We, we, we've got all kinds of quirks. We've got all kinds of preference. There's, we just aren't... aren't as people, we're not these clean-cut bricks. We're rough around the edges. And Jesus, in his grace, functions as the mortar which holds us all together. This is what the grace of the gospel does. It doesn't just save us. It doesn't just make us part of something. It keeps that thing together. It takes what is incompatible and makes it supernaturally compatible. It accommodates, it supports, it keeps us tightly nestled to one another through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of the gospel. See, Paul is saying, you are a temple that's joined together, that's kept up, that's joined together. Now the question is, church, are we living like that? Are we living like stones that belong as part of something, or are we trying to kind of do our own thing? Now, I think one of the ways that you can identify this is if, like, is your attitude towards church, just in general. Not, ju- not just the Sunday gatherings, but I think of, the, like, the overall church life. So, like, if it's easy for you to miss out on missional community and kind of treat church as, like, a YMCA, like, I've got this member, like, I've got, I'm a member to a YMCA, but I can kind of pick up and bounce around where I want to go, then you're not a, a brick that's been joined in. Or even if it's something that you can plug and play, you know, like, I don't have to be there. I don't play an integral part in this community. And maybe you're not leading, but every brick serves a purpose in this temple that God is putting together. In fact, when, when Paul talks about this, it goes back to the body imagery. He says we're all members. We all have specific tasks. Not everybody can be an ear. Not everybody can be a kneecap. Not everybody can be a mouth. But we all play this vital role. And if you're not seeing yourself as that, You're missing this corporate identity that you have in Christ among the brothers and sisters. Now, as I say this, I want to invite you in. I want to invite you in to find yourself, to to root yourself in part of this church, to be vitally connected. And as I invite you, I know there's probably some people that are thinking, that does not sound like it's for me. Because in reality, on one hand, the church is a fixer-upper. It's a building and it's a holy temple, yes, but it's also full of sinful people. And you put sinners in close proximity, 
sinny stuff is going to happen. And you're probably going to get hurt from time to time. Your feelings might get hurt. You might get offended. And I know many of you have probably experienced that before. You step into the church, and, and nobody can guarantee you that you won't get hurt. In fact, C.S. Lewis has this thing. He's like, the only way that you can know for sure that you won't get hurt is if you completely detach yourself from all kinds of relationships. Take your heart and tuck it so far away to keep it out of reach of anybody that eventually what happens, it becomes unbreakable because it gets cold and hard. So if, if, if that's what you want to do to protect yourself, go at it. You're, you're, you're that Lego brick all by itself. But if you want to step into meaningful connection, there's also the means to mend what's been broken. See, grace reconciles us continually to God. This is what we do every Sunday when we come to the Lord's table. We're reminded that we are continually being reconciled, that we, this status of being reconciled to God is maintained by the blood and the body of Jesus that was broken for us. And we're being reconciled to one another. We're becoming, we're, we're not this glorious, beautiful temple. Like, I don't want to mislead anybody. Sacred City is just like an average church. We got good people. But we're rough around the edges. There's stuff that you might get in here I don't like. You know, and that's, that's fine. That's, but God is making something beautiful here. It's underway. So beautiful, in fact, that God himself is going to dwell in us. In fact, he does dwell in us. This is the whole purpose of, of the temple. That's not just that God, that we're near to the presence of God, but the presence of God is actually in us. There's this progression that goes on throughout this, this chapter. Of, it's moving from far away to near, so near, in fact, that God is dwelling with us. Now, the temple is, where am I at for time here? We're getting there. Um, temple is this, this theme that runs throughout Scripture, this, this idea of nearness. The temple represented the presence of God. Now, in, 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 the, in Genesis, in, in, in Eden, Adam and Eve enjoyed the presence of God, just unrestricted. They call for God, and boom, he's right there, taking walks in the cool of the day with him, this unrestricted access. The fall happens, separation. Remember what we just talked about? Separation, they're pushed away, they lose that. Now, God always desired to have for himself a people. He calls Abraham to himself. He's like, I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to multiply your family. They end up going into Egypt, and they're slaves. God says, I'm going to deliver you. I'm, once again, I'm going to make you my people, bring you into this promised land. And God delivers them, and, and what happens while they're in the wilderness wandering around, it's turned into a 40-year-long hike, but God's with them. Pillar of fire at night, pillar of cloud by day, God is with them. And God gives, gives Moses instructions for building a tabernacle. A tabernacle means a dwelling place, an abode, a place where the presence of God can hunker down and move into the neighborhood. So they build this, temp, or this, this tabernacle, and then later when they get brought into Jerusalem, uh, uh, King Solomon erects this temple. Now God permanently moves into this place, the Holy of Holies, this place that's sanctioned off that only one time a year can the high priest go in and be in the presence of God. Now everybody else in Jerusalem, there, there were... I don't want to get too deep in this because it could be a wormhole, but everybody else is restricted in their access to God. It's like the temple is here, but you can't go in it. Well, in order to get in it, you've got to offer these sacrifices so that you're made clean and you can enter into it because God cannot dwell. A holy God cannot dwell in the midst of sin. Now, all of these sacrifices are ongoing, 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 and then we move forward to the incarnation of Jesus. 
John says in his, the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and the word dwelt among us, put on flesh and dwelt among us. So here we see that Jesus steps into the world as the true and better temple. And it's not very long after John says that in chapter one, you go to John chapter three, and Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about the temple. And Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll bring it back up. And they're like, what do you mean? It took us seven years to build this. How can you build this temple? Well, Jesus wasn't talking about a brick and mortar temple. He was talking about himself. Jesus was, he was the temple that was rejected, the cornerstone that the builders rejected. And Jesus was torn down on the cross. His body was broken. His blood was shed. And when Jesus was talking about rebuilding the temple, it wasn't just his resurrection that would happen three days later. What would happen is he would assemble the church. The church, himself, the church itself would become the dwelling place for God. It's not just Jesus, not just in the presence of Jesus, but where the church is. In fact, Jesus is wherever two or three or more are gathered, there I am. There's a special presence that happens when Christians are united together. Even right now in this space, God's presence is dwelling among us in a special way that you can't get access to when you're in your own prayer closet by yourself. There's something special and in the new creation, which is where we're moving toward, right? If you're in Christ, you, you get to the, the, your future is incredibly bright. You're moving to this new creation where God will be with us forever with unrestricted access at all times and unending presence with God. But in order for that to happen, the true and better temple was destroyed so that we could become that temple for God. If you're in Christ, this is who you are. You are part of a new humanity. You have been made alive to God. You're not dead in your sin. You've been made alive to God, this new humanity. So put off the old self. Here's the application. Put off the old self. What are the things that are ensnaring you? What are the things that are keeping you from flourishing? Put those things away and live to Christ. You live in a new kingdom. You're a citizen in a new nation. Declare your allegiance to Jesus. This king who shows his undying faithfulness toward you laid his life down. Respond, reciprocate. Show him your love through obedience. You're part of a new family. Don't, don't just love the father. Yeah, I love the father. But love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're a new temple. God, you are a brick in a new temple. That God, as you join together with your brothers and sisters, is dwelling with us, and his glory shines through. Now listen, if you're not yet a Christian, all that stuff is true, but if you are a Christian, that stuff is true about you. If you're not yet a Christian, there's good news for you. It says that this temple is a growing temple. This temple's a growing temple. I mean, it's expanding. It, it, there are more and more bricks being added to it. That means that you can be part of this. And all you have to do is turn to Jesus in faith and trust in him. See what he has done, that, that his body was broken, his blood was shed. He was the temple that was destroyed so that you could experience the nearness and the presence of God. And Christians, what this means for us is that we go out, we, we don't just... 
We're not a stationary temple. We don't just, we're not the frozen chosen. That God is trying to make an appeal through us and invite more and more people into the family, into the kingdom, into this new humanity, into the temple of the living God. And so let's step out knowing that we go on mission. We go with the purpose of recruiting. That's kind of a, a, a coarse word. But this idea that like God is preparing more and more building bricks for this temple. Let's get them connected. And we could come alive as this new humanity of faith to live our lives as citizens of the kingdom. And this is the crazy thing. There's a huge welcome mat at the front gate of the kingdom of heaven. Huge welcome mat. Anybody who comes to Christ will be welcome in, and the arms of the Father are open wide, ready to receive you. And Jesus paid the price. He made all this happen for you. I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for what you are doing in this church. We thank you that you are a God who doesn't just care about the individual, but you have a desire to have a people, a people for yourself. We ask that you would make this church that kind of a people, that we'd live into this corporate identity, that you would intertwine us to one another in a way that shines your glory, that does that which we cannot do on our own. We ask that your spirit would help us to do this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.